Hello, folks. You are listening to The Infamous, a new true crime podcast here on Slam Radio, really covering anything from cold murders, from serial killers from back away in the day, to anything in between on that spectrum. Here only on Slam Radio, Sirius XM, channel 145. Hello, everyone. You are listening to The Infamous with your host, Nicole, here on Slam Radio, Sirius XM, channel 145. So, for this show in particular we're gonna be talking about jack the ripper in my opinion one of the most notorious serial killers to ever exist and uh, most importantly we'll be talking over about the crimes that he committed as well as how the officers and civilians have reacted and lastly of this whole podcast we'll also be talking about the theories of who jack the ripper could possibly be so to start us off we're gonna talk about the gruesome murders that jack the ripper committed in victorian england so really quickly, before we actually get into some of the grisly details of Jack Ripper's actual murder cases, I do want to talk about an outlier, and the outlier would be Emma Smith. So she was a local woman of the night, if you will. And on April 3rd of 1888, she was uh, attacked by a local gang, and she was essentially robbed and terribly assaulted. And at the end of it, she, at some point, dies at the hospital, uh, at the London hospital of the time, due to her injuries that she had succumbed to from the beating and the assault that the local gang um, sadly attributed towards her. And while she was not a victim of Jack the Ripper, she is still regarded in the murder files that would later become uh, and would later include the murders of Jack the Ripper. So sometimes people do get a bit confused on the aspect of it because it has the same sort of uh, name as a lot of similar cases that Jack Ripper sort of, you know, dealt with himself because it is labeled as the first Whitechapel murder. However, it has no association to Jack the Ripper because he, from the knowledge of the, uh, the, the officers of the time as well as people that have looked into it today, there is no proof that there, he had anything to do with it. So he has nothing to do with the with the uh, very untimely and very sad death of Emma Smith because he was just not a part of what had happened to her. But just to, to get that confusion out of the way, she is still included in the file because of the fact of during the around the time period and where it happened, it just sort of falls in line that they're all very similar in the murder file that's all it is so if anybody's ever heard about emma smith or has ever heard her attributed towards jack the ripper i'm going to say that right now (laughs) from my knowledge and from my research that is incorrect she was just sadly beaten by a local gang and she succumbed to her injuries in the local hospital and she's only regarded in a very similar file because of the location of it which was Whitechapel. so after a few other very tragic deaths of a couple other uh, women of the nights in August of the same year. Now we're going to get into the actual cases of what Jack the Ripper uh, is very well known for. So Jack the Ripper, the first known victim of his is Marianne Nichols. And as I mentioned before, she is the commonly believed first victim of Jack the Ripper. And she is found at the Bucks Row Whitechapel at 3.40 in the morning. 
on August 31st, 1888. So now from this murder, we're going to be seeing the very widely known and widespread brutality of what has become of Jack the Ripper's sort of presence in modern times. So as I previously mentioned, she was found at 3.40 in the morning, which is very important to note because she was last seen alive at 2.30 in the morning. So around an hour before, she was completely... Well, it's sort of like the split-second thing where anything can happen in a moment in your life because strictly an hour later, that's when she was found dead. And the way that she was found dead was that she had a slip throat and she had various slashes down and across on her abdomen which we then see to be a very common sort of killing way that Jack the Ripper used to indulge in on his four other well-known victims. So because all of these murders were happening one after the other after the other, they began to get a lot of press, which wasn't something that you really saw quite often during this time. So in September of the early September of 1888, you began seeing a lot more of these press releases and these just in general newspaper coverage for for the in, the brutality of these murders. Now keep in mind again with Emma Smith had nothing to do with Jack the Ripper. However, the time, the convenient timing, as well as I mentioned, there was a couple others. So. Before, after Emma Smith, but before Marianne Nichols, there was another uh, murder of Martha Tabram, and she had a very similar occupation. And she, again, she has nothing to do with Jack the Ripper, however, very untimely, very coincidental. And so because these three murders happened back to back to back and were essentially happening to very similar women, they got quite, quite a few interesting press releases so for Marianne Nichols in particular, uh, they went pretty in-depth in what happened to her. So as I mentioned before, she had a slit throat and she also had gashes on her abdomen and slashes going across. So they they go very, very in-depth on this. So essentially, the wounds that she did suffer from this seemed to nearly extend all the way to her breast, which shows just the the hurriedness sort of of this crime and how how intense it had it had become to be and so you see that just she had been knocked out she was missing some teeth her cheeks were discolored uh she was roughhoused because of of how how she was missing certain buttons and how her how her dress was very torn and how it was cut up in several places other than where he had slashed her and how there was such intensity that was displayed by the the murder that he committed and so because of this they started then ramping up a lot more of certain uh, night watchmen within the streets because of how intense and how uh really crowded the crime was becoming in that in that area however with all of this nobody had heard a scream nobody had any uh sort of hadn't has seen any signs of there being an issue of, of of a woman being in distress or of a man terrorizing a woman so he, this sort of also shows you the beginning of jack the ripper becoming very elusive towards the media and you're also seeing this because when mary ann nichols when she'd first passed a note from the alleged killer uh had described 
the the murders, um, what he had done to her, but he also uses the words, quote-unquote, grand work, to describe um, the emotion and as well how he viewed the murders that he was committing, especially for Mary Ann Nichols. So as we get further along in this, her murder already seems gruesome enough. However, it continuously becomes more and more gruesome because he grows a bit more and more confident with, with each murder that he does end up committing. So continuing on, we're also understanding that he has more victims. It's not just Marianne Nichols. So continuing on, on September 8th of 1888, the second victim of Jack the Ripper was found in the backyard of 29 Hanbury Street, and the poor woman is Annie Chapman. So Annie Chapman, when she died, she was around uh, the age of 47 years old. A lot of the victims that you see of Jack the Ripper are in their 40s. They're not the, uh, the ideal, young, and naive sort of victims that you would normally see in a lot of uh, more recent serial killers. Um, she lived quite a nomadic sort of life. She was out and about. And just like many of the other women during this time period, the way that she obtained her, her money was from very basic crochet work or, you know, the, the creation and selling of artificial flowers. You know, she was a small business owner, essentially. But also, with entertaining in the slightest form I could possibly say. Uh, I will be using the, the, the term lady of the night quite often, and she was a lady of the night as well. And she had a couple known clients, and essentially, the, the time of her death, well, one of the last sightings was uh, three days after she had been seen sort of uh, bruised and in pain, which was on the 7th of September, where she had met with a friend of hers, um, Amelia Palmer, in uh, Dorset Street. And she looked very, very ill. She did not look of well spirits either. And so that was essentially the last that anybody had really seen of her, one of her last sightings recorded, essentially. So when Annie Chapman's body was found, it was found around 6 a.m. by a man named John Davis. Um, he was an older man, and he was walking along the passageway of 29th and Hanbury Street. And that's when he sort of caught the eye of what was in front of him. And it, it startled him immensely. And essentially, he called in the other men, and they were, they were terrified of what was happening because uh, her, 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 her throat was also slit, but a handkerchief was tied around her throat, um, because she had been wearing that when the killer had, when Jack the Ripper had cut her throat, and essentially, it was sort of, like, regarded of, like, stop the head from rolling away. So, the men just watched completely in terror, because her head was turned towards the house, her clothes were completely tugged and, 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 and pulled on, and it had been uh, pulled above her waist, exposing um, really any of her, and she, her face was covered in blood, her hands were covered in blood, um, her hands were, were raised over with her palms up in a, in the upper portion of the, of her body, um, which essentially was showing 
that she had a lot of struggle with what she was uh, going through. So these women so far have been battered and bruised from what we can tell, which, as I mentioned before, is only going to get worse. So with this, there's also been other things that I have been keeping gaps from because that will be mentioned in the next segment. I know, I know, it's just... The cliffhangers, I know, they're, they're insufferable. However, it's important, okay? <laughs> However, I will keep this, I will, I will say, um, on September 27th of 1888, a newspaper, uh, I'm sorry, a letter addressed to the Central News a- Agency was addressed as, quote-unquote, the boss. And it was signed as Jack the Ripper, which is what becomes, which is what makes the unknown man very notorious and literally into a legend known worldwide. So that's sort of where you see that from. And essentially, he didn't also get his, he didn't come up with his nickname on his own. The press did. The press gave it to him. And then here we are. So continuing on with that, on September 30th of 1888, uh, at one o'clock in the morning, the body of Elizabeth Stride was found in Burner Street off of the commercial road. So when her body was examined post-mortem by Dr. George Baxter Phillips, he also covered the Chapman murder, which was the uh, second victim of Jack the Ripper, and he also covered the Kelly murder, which was essentially the last victim of Jack the Ripper. So when he was examining her body post-mortem, she she handled the uh, very similar to uh the other victims uh slit throat she was in very humiliating uh, stances with how he positioned her body um he essentially played with her body just as he had with the prior uh victims and as he will continue to do to the rest of the victims that he will encounter very sadly encounter um the 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 it was very interesting how it was, though, because with the cuts on on her throat, um, there was the right side was a bit more superficial, so it tapered off. It wasn't really um, exactly um, deep enough like how it was for Chapman, where it was essentially like her head was falling off to some sort of degree. Um, she had blood all over herself. She had she was all muddy. She was essentially in the same place, sadly, as the other victims that Jack Ripper had already dismantled so jack the ripper on his other victims after elizabeth stride he became a bit i guess you could say ballsy because on the exact same day september 30th of 1888 at 145 in the morning the body of catherine eddowes his fourth victim um was discovered in the meter square in the city of london essentially in this murder he was near the area of where they were already looking for Elizabeth Stride. And when they found the other body, they sort of immediately knew what was happening. So as a given, this happened very similarly to the other uh, victims. She had very similar um, markings and very similar, sadly, the way that she was handled. However, her the last victim is very interesting. On November 9th of 1888... A 25-year-old, Mary Kelly, was found dead in her room at 13 Miller's Court of Dorset Street, Spitalfields. And she, as 
believed to be the very last victim ever known to belong to Jack the Ripper. Now, the interesting part of this is that it was in her home, which means she must have known this person and or was very similar or had some sort of connection to this person. Um, She was the only one that had been found anywhere near um, their actual place of, 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 of resting, her home. So... Again, very similar in the way that she that she had died, very tragically. They all shared one common attribute. They were all ladies of the night, and they all sort of indulged in a very similar lifestyle in that manner. Um, however, they were all treated, and essentially their bodies were played and humiliated from Jack the Ripper. And when we come back here on The Infamous, we're going to talk about some gaps that I didn't fill in, which is essentially how the officers and the civilians reacted to these extreme cases that Jack the Ripper uh, essentially portrayed in Victorian England, which was already extreme in itself. Here on the infamous Slam Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 45. Hey, look what I found. A radio. Radio. Slam Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 145. Text and work. Text and pretend to work. Text and act surprised when someone calls you out for not working. Who, me? Text and whatever. Just don't text and drive. Visit StopTextsStopRex.org. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. I'm Andrew Saul, Commissioner of Social Security. Beware of telephone scammers pretending to be government employees. Real Social Security employees will never threaten you. Call is threatening you with arrest or other legal action and demanding money are not from us. If you receive a call like this, hang up, do not provide them with any form of payment or information. Report the call at oig.ssa.gov. Allison is perfect. I mean, she'd never tell you that. She's humble and perfect. She likes everyone. She even likes her untidy roommate's weird guinea pig. Allison, wait, are you texting and driving? Allison, no, that's the exact opposite of what I was just saying about you. Why, Allison, why? Texting and driving makes good people look bad. Visit StopTextStopRex.org, brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. I'm constantly failing, guys. I'm constantly learning. It's not how you fall, it's how you get back up. There's no losing, only learning. There's no failure, only opportunities. And there's no problems, only solutions. So to me, what failure is, failure is the mother of all success. But I really get motivated when people tell me it'll never happen. That, that to me is what makes me get up in the morning and go, what's next? I love people to tell me no. I love people to tell me don't, it won't, impossible. And uh, the word can't is the word can. And the word don't is the word do. And the word won't is the word one. And in the word impossible, it's possible. So what do you tell them? You tell them, you know, you know that, that all they can do is learn. 
and come back bigger, better, stronger, because all it's going to do is lead you in the right direction. See, if you're always winning, then you don't really understand what it is to win. You, you got to take those losses. You got to take those hits. There's got to be the valleys, the peaks, the ups, the downs. In order for you to, when it does happen, you go, wow, you know, this is what it's all about. On behalf of all of us here at Slam Radio, we would like to thank you, Pitbull, for making this dream become a reality. Good morning, amigo. So that Never one makes a little more sense. Backwards, not even to get... How do you even, like... Well, hold on. That might be actually difficult to... Para atrás ni para coger impulso. Don't even go back a step, to, even if it's just to go forward. It seems Always like it's a long forward. explanation. Yeah, it's hard it to... It seems like you have to write... It sounds like two, 250 words. Explain this sentence. That phrase needs an instruction manual. <laughs> Good morning, Amigo. Weekdays from 7 to 11, only on Sirius XM 145 Slam Radio. To protect his home and family from disaster, Steve used courage, wisdom, and his camera phone. That should do it. Way to go, Steve. By simply taking digital pictures of his family's important documents, Steve can always have them stored safely online, no matter when disaster strikes. Learn other simple ways to protect your home and family before a natural disaster at ready.gov. That's ready.gov. A message from FEMA and the Ad Council. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to The Infamous here on Slam Radio, Sirius XM 145 with your host, Nicole. So, as in the first segment of the show, just in case you couldn't catch up or you, or you were just listening, which, hello, hi, welcome, um, we talked about the Jack the Ripper murder victims so i went in depth in a few of them because essentially the the in-depth of just those few was in reality the in-depth of all the victims in total because sadly they all succumbed very similar fates it was just which one was more brutal and which one was in the home and not in the street um however for this segment, we're going to talk about something that I purposefully left out in the first segment. I wanted the first segment to strictly be about the the victims that had to sadly endure the brutality of Jack the Ripper. So the second segment, which, hi, <laughs> is strictly about how the media, the officers, and the civilians had reacted to Jack the Ripper. Because this is very, very important. You're seeing this as a... Well, now is a widespread, nas- widespread, national, international, whatever you want to call it. It's very well known. But back in the day, this was something like first of its kind. You hadn't really seen uh, murders like this gain media press because you hadn't seen back-to-back-to-back sort of killings, especially in this era of England. You didn't, you didn't catch it. So a big part of this is that I mentioned before, Jack the Ripper really got his name because of the newspapers. He didn't label himself as Jack the Ripper. The newspapers did because he would rip these women apart. Uh, so, as I had briefly mentioned in the first segment, he allegedly sent in a letter after the first murder of his first victim. And so, as this continues going on, officers realize that they're being antagonized as well as the newspaper catches on and the newspaper starts to add this in on their own sort of form 
and their own formatting of how they can develop their own writing for this. So it wasn't essentially until after the second victim of Jack the Ripper's did the 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 locals sort of do something because they didn't realize there was a pattern yet until after the second victim. So it wasn't until uh, Mr. George Lusk, a uh, businessman, had gathered up several other local businessmen, and essentially they were they were funding this uh, Mile End Vigilance Committee, and they were hoping to do this because they wanted to assist the police in order to quicken the endeavors to catch this murderer. This, this man was terrorizing England, especially this sort of area of Whitechapel and Spitalfield, because they hadn't seen something like this, as I, as I mentioned before. This was strictly new to them. He was, he was delivering a whole new form of, of, of fear that they hadn't really dealt with beforehand. Not only that, that was done as well on September 10th of 1888, and something else that was done on September 10th of eighty-eight of 1888 was John Pizer was arrested by uh, Sergeant Thick, And basically, this sort of connects because this man was uh, extorting a lot of the Lady of the Knights and was believed to at least have been a, a, su- a suspect in the murder of Marianne Nichols. He went under an alias of Leather Apron and... When they arrested him, they figured out that he was able to provide alibis for the murders and was later on released. And when other murders were actually happening, it was impossible for him to commit them because he was already in custody and he couldn't have committed a crime when he was two places at once. It's just strictly impossible. So that's why Leather Apron, who was extorting money from many of these ladies, is completely off of the suspect list for the murders of the victims of Jack the Ripper. On September 27th of 1888, I mentioned this also in the first segment, there was this very mysterious letter that was addressed as, um, addressed to, quote-unquote, the boss. And it arrived at the Central News Agency, and it was signed off with Jack the Ripper. And so this is one of the most notorious writings because this is where you have the constant of, hey boss, or the constant vernacular that he would use and the official signing of Jack the Ripper because you don't see that in the first writing because he hadn't had a name yet. They didn't give him a name until much later, which is why September 27th, that is one of the most notable writings that many sort of go to whenever they are investigating and looking for Jack the Ripper uh, things. On October 1st of 1888, that's when the, uh, when the police officers decided to make the Jack the Ripper letter public because they hadn't made any of the letters sent from Jack the Ripper public to the newspapers yet. The, newspaper, the newspapers were running rampant on the actual cases and the murders themselves, but not on the little tidbits that Jack the Ripper was feeding to the police officers. This was, this was primarily done because the most part of it, they didn't want to seem, not inferior, but there was a lot of things that were going into this. Many women were dying. It was happening back to back to back to back. There was, there was a lot going on that they sort of wanted to keep this under wraps as much as they could to not make this seem as big as it was. But at some point, 
it was sort of biting them in the behind and they had to. On October 6th of 1888, the Central News Agency received another letter that is signed by Jack the Ripper. And this one, the police asked them to not make this letter public because, again, very similar reasoning. They didn't want to make the seam as big as it was. They wanted to keep this not as down low. However, they wanted to make sure that it wasn't broadcasted in a way that would make it seem worse and or, in reality, the, the, the extent of what it was. On October 16th, we go back to Mr. George Lusk. He receives a letter that is addressed from hell. And in that one, it contains half a kidney. And this is where the press sort of runs wild. We see it in, in modern media today. However, for this one, it, it sort of holds some weight. Jack Derber was known to mutilate his victims, as I mentioned in the first segment. He would go wild. It was a field day for him. He, he had no regard. He, he essentially treated these women like, like anatomical toys. He had a very good idea of anatomy when it came to certain parts of the body. And so with this half of a kidney, the press began to speculate that it belonged to Catherine Eddowes, one of the victims of his. And to further elaborate on some of the letters I had talked about, because I, I sort of scratched the surface on them. So to really dig deep on the Dear Boss letter, as I mentioned before, it was received on September 27th of 1888, and it was believed to be a hoax. However, three days later, the double stride the double murder, I'm sorry, of Elizabeth Stride and of Catherine Eddowes made them reconsider because in the letter, it sort of alludes to this. And it is also the first letter that addresses it as Jack the Ripper and refers to um, as the whole situation of like, Dear Boss, which will come in handy in the future, trust me. And that handwriting is very similar to the Saucy Jackie postcard. postcard. And this was received on October 1st of 1888 um, at the Central News Agency. So the handwriting is very similar to the Dear Boss letter. And there's direct references to both of the letter and the murders of the previous night. So because of specific details of how the handwriting is very comparable, as well as specific details to the, the nights beforehand and of certain other uh, things to come, it was believed to be very genuine. So countless of people during the time, as well as now in modern time, believe that the, the Saucy Jackie postcard is an authentic postcard, is, is very authentic to Jack the Ripper himself. And continuing on to furthermore on the From Hell letter that was received on October 16th to George Lusk, which as we mentioned previously in this segment, he was the one who founded and also became the president of the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee in order to help the police 
uh, in the effort of trying to catch Jack the Ripper. So he, he had received a three-inch square cardboard box in his uh, mailbox. And this is where um, half of the human heart was was found in. And I didn't go to detail, however, I will now. It was preserved in wine. And so the reason why many believe it to be Catherine Eddowes's, uh kidney was because it was very similar to the one that was removed from Catherine Eddowes. However, Dr. Openshaw, the one who did figure everything out and did give his opinions on this, his findings were still very inconclusive, so it could go either way. So that's that's really up to you and what you believe on that image for it. So I will give you the uh, transcription of what the letter from hell contains. So just so you all know. So quote-unquote, from hell, Mr. Lusk, sore, I send you half the kidney I took from one woman and preserved it for, for you to other piece I fried and ate. It was very nice. I may send you the bloody knife that it took that took it out if you only wait a while longer. Signed, catch me when you can, Mr. Lusk. End quote. That took me a little time and a bit of trouble because the grammar isn't all there. Again, this is this is old England. <laughs> There's certain things that are spelled differently and will be taken differently. However, that is that is the letter that was received with a kidney preserved in, in wine. Can, that's that's terrifying. <laughs> that is absolutely terrifying. Um, so there's this whole view of how everything sort of goes together. He's obviously antagonizing certain certain specific people that hold a meaning to him in some degree, the police officers, the media that is documenting what he's doing, and certain committees that are trying to stop what he's doing. So one other sort of letter that I do want to talk about that was received on October 29th of 1888, this one does not have as much of research uh, credence as a lot of the other ones do. So this one's a bit on the fence of it could be real, but it's most likely fake. Um, this one I just want to add in because even if it is fake, you're sort of seeing this uh, this sort of, not essentially a fan base, however, this, this sort of need to, to be notorious for something and how it's believed to be a modern thing, however, it dates back even to Jack the Ripper age of, of crimes. So I do want to talk about this. So again, on October 29th of 1888, um, Dr. Openshaw, the one who had determined, hey, it might be Catherine Eddowes's left kidney, um, he had received a letter that was as if from Jack the Ripper. And the transcript of it, I will say as follows. So, quote, Old boss, you was right. It was the left kidney. I was going to operate again close to you, of spite, just as I was going to draw me knife along of her blooming throat. Them cusses of coppers spoilt the game. End quote. I can continue on and on and on and on. However, that's not very prevalent. Um, for the most part, I do think it's very interesting to, to note that this whole segment is essentially talking about 
how people reacted. And whether it was the media, the cops, the civilians that created uh, phenomenal committees to try to help the cops, or if it was just genuine local people. And you're seeing so many different perspectives on this. You're seeing people that are genuinely trying to help the cops with uh, Mr. George Lusk create creating the vigilance committee in order to sort of continue and motivate the efforts of the police officers but you're also getting the police officers trying their hardest to maintain some integrity and trying to catch this this guy and the media uh portraying countless of crimes and the the gritty details of what he was doing to these women essentially humiliating them even when they were passed you see that there's other sorts of people that are sort of trying to attract this fame in a different way. Many, there's countless of other letters and postcards and small little anecdotes that are written as if it was from Jack the Ripper. However, they have no, they have no weight to them because they aren't true. They're, they're false records and there's people that are trying to imitate Jack the Ripper. And not in the crimes that he's committing. However, they're trying to take the notoriety from him and the writings that they're sending. So you're seeing that there's so many different outcries and different perspectives of, of a lot of these folks and how they react to this. And as I mentioned previously, a lot of people like to think that um, these, these sort of copycats are a modern fad, when in reality it isn't. This is something that has been a thing since humans could create something. Copycats have always been a thing, whether it's to try and steal some notoriety or if it's just trying to bag some sort of clout in modern time. And I wanted to add that in because I thought that it was still prevalent in how people reacted to it. So yes, thank you very much. That's the end of this segment. So next up on the final segment of The Infamous, we'll be talking about some theories of who Jack Thipper could possibly be. Here on The Infamous on Sam Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 145. Hey, look what I found. A radio. Radio. Slam Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 145. I'm Andrew Saul, Commissioner of Social Security. I'm here to warn you about telephone scammers pretending to be government employees. Some of these scammers may say threatening things like you will be arrested if you don't make payments or provide personal information. Do not fall for these tricks. These calls are not from us. Real Social Security employees will never threaten you for information or money. If you receive a call like this, hang up. Never give the caller your personal information, like your Social Security number or bank account, or send money in any form, cash, gift cards, wire transfers, or prepaid debit cards. Report the call to our law enforcement arm, the Office of the Inspector General at oig.ssa.gov. Share this information with your friends and family. Why was the basketball court all wet? Because the players kept dribbling on it. The dad joke. <laughs> Corny, groan-worthy but also one of the simplest ways to share a moment with your kids. What did the buffalo say when he dropped his son off for school? Bye, son. <laughs> so take a moment to make your kid laugh, because dad jokes rule. Make your kid laugh today. Go to fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. 
Social Security is with you through life's journey from birth to retirement. As your life changes year to year, so do your needs. For over 80 years, Social Security has helped to meet your needs and is committed to improving access to the services that make a difference in your life. Today, you can verify your earnings, estimate your future benefits, apply for retirement, manage your benefits, and even change your address, all from the comfort of your home. Social Security's online services help put you in control with secure access to your information anytime, anywhere, allowing you to spend more time with family, friends, or simply just enjoying the day. Social Security, securing today and tomorrow. See what you can do online at socialsecurity.gov. Produced at U.S. taxpayer expense. 180 over 111, and I had a stroke. 145 over 92, and then I had a heart attack. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a heart attack or stroke are far from silent. Get back on your treatment plan or talk with your doctor to create a plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhbp.org. Everything's changed. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. We are strong, we are resilient, and we will get through this together. But these are stressful times, and it's important to also practice good self-care. It's normal to feel overwhelmed, anxious, or afraid, but there is hope. Reach out to someone, connect with your friends, stay in touch with your community, and know that you are not alone. Learn more at wearebroadcasters.com slash hope. Furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Good morning, amigo. Just the two of us. We can make it if we try. Just the two of us. You and I. Well, you, got the, you forgot that. Just the two of us. Oh, the two of us. We're building castles in the sky. Just the two of us. Go. You and I. There you go. Good morning, amigo. Weekdays from 7 to 11, only on Sirius XM 145 Slam Radio. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the final segment of the infamous here on Sam Radio, Sirius XM Channel 145, with your host, Nicole. So as a little recap for the first and second segment, we were talking about Jack the Ripper and more in-depth in the first segment about his victims and the brutality of his crimes, as well as in the second segment, the reaction of the officers, the civilians, the media, and even some copycat writers for uh, some letters that he, quote-unquote, definitely did not send. And some letters that he did actually send. But here for the final segment, we're going to talk about some theories of who the mysterious man, or believe it or not, for one of the theories, woman, could possibly be. So, one that I genuinely love is one that I think sort of gets shoved over gets shoved under the rug i was gonna say shoved over the rug but that makes absolutely no sense (laughs) but shoved under the rug and i'm gonna get this out of the way first because i'm so intrigued by this one and i i genuinely love it even if people don't think that it could have a possibility a good chunk of people do and quite frankly i think it makes sense (laughs) so during this time the only people that could walk around with blood on their clothing and have nobody bat an eye was a midwife. So, for this first theory, 
people believe that Jack the Ripper was actually Jackie the Ripper and was a midwife. And now let's be honest, that makes sense. Who else in Victorian England would know the anatomy like that other than a midwife? Maybe certain certain types of doctors that experimented on cadavers certain times. However, knowing in real depth, in real time, a midwife would make perfect sense. They'd be able to walk around with blood on their dresses with absolutely no questions from anybody. And if they had a bag that had blood on it or blood around it to carry certain things, such as equipment maybe, it would be perfectly okay and it would be completely passed because they wouldn't have a left kidney or any other organs taken from any victims because they're just a midwife. So it makes sense. It makes so much sense. Now the one thing that people are like, oh, but Nicole... What would be the possible motive of a midwife murdering these women? Hear me out. It's Victorian England. I've said that so many times this whole show, but it's true. It's Victorian England. It's a midwife. Victorian England. Are you catching my drift? If you're not, don't worry. I'm going to further elaborate. No worries, guys. So the thought process behind this is during this time, it's believed where if you were a lady of the night, you know, you were, you were loose to put in very, very uh, relaxed terms. And so if you are a midwife and you have certain views that were very common during this time, very religious views that were very common during this time, where a woman should preserve themselves the same way that a man should and should essentially keep each other for each other and hold this sort of very, very serene and special moment for certain elements and certain times together. If she saw people that were sort of going against that, And we're not only using it as a pleasure thing, but also as a way to obtain funds to live. She could see them as being dirty. And what other way could she sort of get rid of that if not to cleanse them for herself and for themselves? So she would take in the account of of being the cleansing for them. Now, I know that sounds insane. I get it. I know. I don't fully agree with some of that. I don't think that that's a... Listen, it's just no motive is good enough, okay? There's no... Nobody should do anything. <laughs> nobody nobody should commit any, any sort of um, gruesome crimes like that. But however, but it makes sense. It makes so much sense to me because... Come on! Look at, look at the time frame. Look at the time frame. Look at the ideals of the time frame. And... Well, I even asked my mother about this because my mom is a big crime buff as well. My mom said, Nicole, it makes no sense. A woman wouldn't do that. However, like, a woman would do that. You've seen countless of times, even in modern stuff, in modern times, where a woman will go as far as doing things like that 
for some of the most insane reasons, but men will do the exact same thing for insane reasons. So to wrap up theory one, Jack the Ripper is in reality, Jackie the Ripper, a midwife that is sort of cleansing these women for themselves and taking it into her own hands to cleanse them. So she's sort of taking away certain things of their womanhood or just elements of them that would essentially make them who they are or the ideal perspectives of femininity where it's like hey this is why one of the one of the victims have like their dress hiked up it's to show it's to have a a symbolizing for something um which in reality i think makes perfect sense to me i don't i don't know i i think that is one of the most um believable ones in in this case Another more believable theory is theory two, which is that Jack the Ripper was an American. So, this is a callback to the other segments. However, you re- do you remember when we were talking about the letters that he would write to the press and to the officers and to everybody else that he sent a letter to? He would use the wording, hey boss, or old boss, or... Um, just, just in general, the word boss is used. Boss is not the, is not a vernacular that is used commonly in England. It is in New England, however, but not, not in England, not of old England, (laughs) not of where these murders actually took place in. So you hear like a lot of the nicknames of like chief and boss, primarily in, as I mentioned before, New England. So it was believed at the time that it was actually an American man that was committing these crimes and not an English native. And so when you think about it, there was actual, not ferries, but but ships that were going in between and would sort of align with some of the murders that did take place because some of them have uh, certain gaps in between which would make sense for going back and forth if they had some sort of commitment um, in America because that's where they're from. So if they had to, you know, visit a certain family member or do something for a certain job that they had. And remember, the biggest part of this as well is that they have to have had some sort of anatomical awareness. They have to have known where certain things would have met, how to slash certain things correctly without damaging other things, and how to remove certain body parts, and how to remove certain organs, and how to just do what Jack Dripper essentially did. So they would, in general, need to have an anatomical, an, an anatomical background, or at least awareness, as I had mentioned before. So then, theory two sort of combines with theory uh, theory three which is yes jack the ripper was an american however this theory goes more in depth in actually naming this american so in a other show that i'll be making i will be talking about hh holmes i won't go too into depth about what he does because that is a whole different show however He is an American serial killer, and many believe that H.H. Holmes is also Jack the Ripper.
In fact, there was a whole documentary that was done on it where one of the descendants of H.H. H. Holmes believed that H.H. H. Holmes was Jack the Ripper and they did this whole uh, genetic uh, makeup of certain things and they were going over specific um, characteristics of the men or, yeah, of, of the men that were described to be Jack the Ripper because obviously there was witnesses to certain, uh, of, to certain murders or when the man was leaving the murder scene. So they were always very inconsistent. So it sort of played out that if they had certain characteristics that were similar enough to to H.H. H. Holmes, like the certain mustache that he has that is very iconic for him, um, many believe that it works out very, very well. They even did a study on their handwriting. So handwriting is very important when it comes to Jack the Ripper's case because there was countless other... Uh, folks that tried to imitate Jack the Ripper with certain writings to falsify and or to make the scene more interesting and or as we mentioned before to get some notoriety for something that they never could have ever committed themselves. So handwriting became very prevalent in this case and so because of that in modern times with modern uh, technology as well as modern perspectives we've been able to dictate whether certain things are yes or no in the most simplest terms yes or no and what i mean by that is that we're able to look through certain writings and figure out which ones are common and which ones are exact to that person and which ones are similar to that one person so the way they write their t's or their o's or the pressure stuff like that and that's how they're able in modern times to dictate whether which Jack the Ripper case, or which Jack the Ripper writing or letter, is the real one or the fake ones. So, what they did is that they lined up H.H. Holmes' handwriting along with Jack the Ripper's handwriting. And, shockingly enough, they came back surprisingly similar. Like, terrifyingly similar. Like, this is probably the same person similar. However, because of certain inconsistencies and because of certain... uh, just wear and tear on paper and of writing and of ink, it still came as inconclusive in the study. However, the actual people that were studying the whole calligraphy of it said, a uh, penmanship of it, said that this was a very close call and if they could have had certain, uh, if the paper could have been pre- preserved a different way or if it could have been held a different way, uh, they could have probably cracked down and said, yeah, this was this, was this guy's writing. So H.H. H. Holmes has always been a very compelling argument for countless of people i mentioned my mother saying that the midwife theory sounds ridiculous because she is a firm believer that h.h holmes was jack the ripper we watched the documentary together and she went yep it's him it has to be him there's nobody else it could be um so that's that's a little tidbit of it but um so far i think that all of these theories are plausible They're all very plausible, because if you think about it, going back to the midwife theory, the inconsistencies of defining how the man looked like would make sense, because if if you think you're looking for a man, but in reality it's a woman fleeing a crime scene, you wouldn't pay any mind to the woman that has blood on on her dress if she's a midwife. You'd You'd pay mind to a guy that's probably next to her that may look in a hurry or may look displaced, and... You're like, hey, wait a minute, that guy looks a bit off. So it makes sense why there would be inconsistencies 
and trying to pinpoint the men for that. Similarly, if just because of the time that many of these murders were committed in, it would also make sense for two and three to have issues when it comes to pinpointing a certain man because then again, lighting is different, perspectives are different. Maybe in certain lighting, just certain angles, he looks a bit taller or a bit shorter or however it may be. However, there are some defining features that would have been a bit easier to pinpoint. However, again, there's just way too many inconsistencies for that to really be seen properly. So the last theory that I'll be talking about today is known better as the Royal Conspiracy because of the suspect in mention, which is Prince Albert Victor Christian Edward. So many people don't really believe in this theory because of how insane in theory it sounds and insane practicality that it sounds however some people like to entertain the idea because the prince used to frequent a lot of these areas and a lot of these brothels and a lot of these uh common regions where ladies of the night would frequent and so the main point of this is that during an interaction that he was having he contracted syphilis which made him go insane and so the rest of this theory goes that he had a child with one of the local women there and so the queen it, it sort of ruled her, her her crown over and said anybody who knows of this child must cease to exist and so then the whole thing goes that because of how insane he was because of the syphilis he committed the murders himself so then the other women that would have quote-unquote known about the child would have been the ones to sort of clock out so that's how that theory sort of goes do i believe in this theory absolutely not i don't really entertain the idea of it but it's a very popular one and before i do leave you i do want to give just a little tidbit for this so everybody tries to figure out who jack derper is we can't just revel in the mystery of it anymore. People want to know. And so, this was done, um, a, a whole uh, genealogy study was done because of a descendant of Catherine Eddowes that there was some sort of blood that was found that did not belong to any of Eddowes' family. And so, they believed that it was Jack Dripper's blood. And so, this man brought it in to get tested to see what type of uh, gene it would have to see if it would be able to have like a rare gene that would dictate it away from certain aspects of England or of Europe in general. And so when they tested it, it the, the researcher accidentally put in the wrong coding for it and put it in as having one of the rare codes, which is 314.1c, which is a mutation that occurs in only 1 in 290,000 people. However, it was incorrect, as you could only imagine, as I mentioned before. And in reality, the actual m mistype that they meant to actually put in was not at all 314.1c. It was instead 315.1c, which is found in the majority of Europe. So, yeah. Poor guy. He bragged about it and everything, and it turned out to be wrong. So, sadly, this episode has to end. We talked about the gruesome murders, as well as the reactions, and some of the theories that sort of evolved and grew because of Jack the Ripper. 
So, hear from the infamous on Slam Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 145.